Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the continuing politics of climate change, the beauty myth of Angus Taylor turns ugly, our highlights for the 2019 year in politics and the crystal ball for 2020, and we are also publishing a new book. It's called Divided Opinions, and we'll be providing more details about it at the end of this episode. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, decorated veteran of the war against Christmas. Climate change continues to be a key factor in federal politics, with bushfires still burning around the country, and the obvious signs of smoke are still surrounding the city of Sydney. Air quality in Sydney reached a level of 12 times above hazardous, and with the more obvious signs of climate change, it would be safe to assume that governments would be moving to address the issue, but, if anything, it's pushed Conservatives back into their corner, and any meaningful action to address climate change seems to be years away. It's almost as though political leaders are hoping for the weather to clear up, Christmas and holiday time to arrive to rescue them, and then hope that they never have to talk about climate change ever again. But it's never going to be that easy. The recent climate change talks in Madrid ended in a stalemate, and it looks like the hot burning summers will be with us for some time to come. Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales seem to be intent on alienating the public on climate change, and these leaders are not talking about what they can do to manage extreme weather events. In Scott Morrison's case, he decided it was all too much to handle and decided to go for an early holiday to a remote Pacific island. Climate change is an issue that won't go away, even though political leaders hope that it all just disappears. Of course, it's going to disappear when we can't live on the planet anymore, but I'm sure that's not what they're after. It's been quite ridiculous. Uh, He's promised money that he's already promised. There was that $11 million to fire services that they were supposed to get 12 months ago. The arrogance in going on holidays, I think it's been unprecedented that a Prime Minister hasn't either cancelled holidays or come back from holidays in terms of a disaster. Now, his office said that when they rang on Monday that he'd be back on Thursday, or on the Wednesday they implied that he was rushing back on the Thursday. So obviously the spin has started. The other one, of course, is the New South Wales government. I think we're seeing more and more the weakness of the the government there. Those of us who are still driving through choked up Sydney roads, infrastructure that doesn't quite work, has blown out and breaks down on its first day, really aren't surprised, but are disappointed at Gladys Berejiklian. And of course, they're supported by the press. And this leads into another issue, the media management of climate change reporting and the media reporting on Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison and his family, they've gone on holidays. Now, very few people, except for the partisans, would begrudge the Prime Minister taking holidays. But the position of Prime Minister isn't just your normal, typical day job. Most people understand that the Prime Minister, like most other politicians, will work hard and that they will need to take some time off. But the big issue for the electorate recently has been the timing of this holiday and the irreverence shown. It's obvious Scott Morrison doesn't want to make that link between climate change and bushfires, but this is a national emergency. There are still bushfires burning in every state around Australia. The New South Wales government has actually declared a state of emergency. So for the Prime Minister, first of all, to direct the media not to report the fact that he was going on leave, and most media outlets actually acceded to this request, 
and then go on leave during the time of a state of emergency, one week before Christmas, this was considered unacceptable to many people. Scott Morrison's political antenna has deserted him completely over the past month, saying nothing at all about climate change, claiming international reports castigating his government's inaction on climate change are not credible, and then going on an overseas holiday during the time of a state of emergency is a serious lack of political judgment. He was the Member of Parliament who was described as a clown by Paul Bongiorno for bringing in a lump of coal, saying coal won't hurt you, it's just a lump of coal and it's vital to the economy. As we've gone on, all three have been shown not to be quite true. Now I know that the coal owners who listen to this are now sputtering their, their scotches and their monocles are dropping, but it's true. Coal is moving away from being the centre of the Australian economy. And it wasn't there for very long, really. Before coal, it was sheep and gold. And, of course, Australia has based itself on agricultural and extractive industries, probably to its long-term detriment. But coal didn't rule the roost for that long. It's quite interesting. Labor now, too, has said coal is the future, even with Wayne Swan taking a, a job in the fossil fuel industry. Of course, Labor is in a difficult position. It doesn't want to lose the coal mining unions, who are very worried about their jobs, but it also doesn't want to lose a lot of people who are starting to see the end of coal. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out over the next 6 to 12 months. We have been highly critical of the federal government and the New South Wales government for their lack of action on climate change issues and not doing enough on bushfire management strategies. Now, that's not to be critical of the actions of fire services and volunteers all around Australia in trying to put out the fires that are happening right now. Our criticisms have been about the management leading up to these fires that have happened. But it's just not the conservative side of politics that's being affected by the lack of action here. There was a climate change rally in the centre of Sydney last week and around 10,000 people assembled at Town Hall and marched down to Hyde Park. As you can imagine, it was quite a hostile audience that was highly frustrated about the inaction on climate change. And with the smoke providing a backdrop to the city and many people wearing face masks, it had the feeling of an impending apocalypse. Now, there were howls of outrage against the government. That's both the federal government and the New South Wales government. But the biggest hostility was reserved for the leader of the Labor opposition, Anthony Albanese. As you mentioned, it's a balancing act for Labor, the interests of workers in these industries, managing the unions, as well as trying to develop effective climate change policy that's acceptable to the electorate. Climate change is becoming a big problem for the government, and it's not an issue that's going to go away. But could it become an even bigger problem for the Labor Party, even though they're not currently in office and won't be in office for at least another three years? It's been apparent for about the last 10 years, probably more really, that the major parties are working on paradigms from the mid of the 20th century. Politics has changed. I think we've reached a point where left and right have realigned somewhat. And I think we're starting to see these tensions now with more environmentally aware urban uh, some rural, but certainly more environmentally aware people or environmentally protective people, as opposed to those who are more industrially and agriculturally aware, splitting. And this is splitting parties. And this is splitting parties on both sides. A couple of New South Wales ministers have come out and said the bushfires are a result of climate change. 
and they've been disagreed with by other Liberal ministers. Same in the Labor Party. And of course, the Greens have their own splits, not over the environment. I think we may be heading into a major period of change and flux. We really can't say that the 2019 election was purely a climate change election. Elections are rarely fought on just the one issue, but it's safe to say that it was an area that Labor campaigned strongly on, but they were the ones that lost the election. While the Liberal National Party, which barely mentioned environmental issues at all, they did win that election. Whatever the critics in the media or to the left of the Labor Party may say, Labor is pretty much the only party, along with the Greens, that comes to election campaigns with climate change policy. It might not be to everyone's satisfaction, but they are the ones that participate, whereas the Liberal Party brings nothing to the table. We could say that the public is concerned about climate change and environmental issues, but if there's a hip pocket cost involved, it's an area that can easily be attacked by their opponents and generally the electorate won't vote for it. This is another factor that Labor will need to take into account, not just for the next election, but the elections after that as well. And it's probably an issue that also needs to take into account factional issues within the party. It's possible that there will be political blood spilled and splits happen. Labor, historically, at least through the 20th century, split every 10 year, or 15 years or so. They split in 1916. Uh, they split again in 1931. They split again in 1954. They haven't split since... But the factions have been much more apparent, they've been much more highlighted, they've been much more obvious. It may be that it's time for another split. The other thing, of course, is that there is a press that we are assured by one of its major figures, Rupert Murdoch, that News Limited is not. He doesn't have any climate denialists on staff, which struck me as an odd thing. As as far as I can tell, at least half of the... uh, columnists are climate change denialists. That's one very strong reason why climate change issues will always be difficult to address in Australia. Rupert Murdoch and the influence of News Limited in political debates. Just like many conservative politicians, Rupert Murdoch isn't immune from news fabrications. The day after he claimed that there are no climate change denialists in any of his publications, the Daily Telegraph attacked the New South Wales Environment Minister Matt Keane, in a front-page news article. And uh, this is after he declared, yes, there is a link between climate change and the New South Wales bushfires. But we can't really believe anything that comes from Rupert Murdoch. And after the Leveson inquiry in the UK in 2011, he should probably be serving jail time. But that's, that's another issue that we can discuss at another time. Climate change, of course, isn't just an issue for Australia. It's an international issue. And last week, there was a UN climate change conference in Madrid. Now, this is a conference where the energy ministers from around the world and senior government officials meet to discuss climate change matters, and they try to reach a consensus on international climate policy. Now, of course, there's many factors that come into play when trying to develop binding climate agreements, and it is quite difficult, but there's economic factors, geopolitics, international relationships, trade, then there's the management of stakeholders, but at least there's some type of movement towards a consensus. But Australia, the US and China, they were the recalcitrants at the conference. And Angus Taylor, again, he overstated the efforts that Australia is taking on reducing emissions and pretty much said that not much can be done about it and started talking about pie-in-the-sky technology that would supposedly cure the emissions problem. 
The Madrid conference, it was a highly frustrated affair and the only consensus that they did reach was to postpone all the debates and continue them at next year's climate conference in Glasgow. Angus Taylor has shown to be one of the great disappointments. I think he was seen as a future Prime Minister, Rhodes Scholar, very popular. The journalist Ronnie Salt, of course, discovered he was selling water that didn't exist and the money was being funded into a Cayman Islands account. Now, this is all allegedly, I guess, but the evidence was pretty clear. Now, there may be things that we haven't seen and there's a, an explanation, but he's got, it seems, a funny relationship with the truth. His company had huge tax issues, which the treasurer at the time, a young person called Scott Morrison, pulled him out of. Again, I think this was Ronnie Salt who discovered this. When you look at the connections, when you look at the favours and the decisions that get made, something is rotten and something needs to be done pretty quickly, even if it's just more transparency. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at the key factors from the year in politics and what to expect in 2020. turned out to be a very big year in Australian politics. We had a big election result for the Liberal National Party. Australia continues to burn because of ineffective climate change policy. The economy is facing an extreme downturn and a former Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister died during the year. Politics has become more tribal and lies, spin and misspeaking are now a common feature of public discourse. After a big year in politics, we were probably hoping it would all recede into the distance but a most unlikely person appeared on the Australian political scene, the feminist writer Naomi Wolf. And of course, for Angus Taylor, the politician who has made more mistakes than anyone else this year, the beauty myth became an ugly reality, where he claimed he lived at Oxford University with Naomi Wolf in 1991, even though she wasn't there at all at the time. The year started off with Scott Morrison telling complete lies about the environmental legislation, and it ends with Angus Taylor telling complete lies about an American feminist writer. And of course, many events did occur in between, but what a great way to end a spectacular year. Naomi Wolf, of course, was with me at Dubbo TAFE doing typing, and we'd drive around at Christmas time and rip down Christmas decorations. No, that's not true, actually. I was at New South Wales University by then. It was a bizarre thing to get caught up on it's probably memory is a studies have shown that memory is one of those things that is highly unreliable and of course he probably genuinely remembered Naomi Wolf being there but once it was pointed out that she wasn't there you say oh I'm sorry I I misremembered my deepest apologies it was someone else and I won that war against Christmas because that's one of the huge or war in his case war for Christmas it's one of the huge debates that they want to have for some reason and you move on and everyone forgets it. And every now and then, oh, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. But oh, it's right. it turned out to be someone. Oh, yeah. And it's done. 
why you would hold on to that as a as a point of principle when it's not looking good for the rest of his points of principles. The police commissioner Fuller thought that the investigation in him, which included Commissioner Fuller stating that they'd be taking uh, search warrants to his place before Christmas, thanks for the warning, but Commissioner Fuller thought it would take a week. It's now gone for three weeks, so obviously there's more evidence than was first thought. We still don't know how it's going to end up, of course. He may be completely innocent. Given that Scott Morrison was able to throw another spanner in the work by ringing the police commissioner, even if he's, even if Angus Taylor is completely innocent, and of course under the system we have to assume he is until proven guilty, there's now been an undermining of that because the Prime Minister rang, and how are we to know that he hasn't affected the outcome in some way, even inadvertently? It's just been blunder after mistake after arrogant movement after who knows what. Misleading the public seemed to be a continuing theme this year. The lies have become more outrageous and more ridiculous. Now, these are public figures and we should expect better from these people. In Australia, it's Scott Morrison, it's Angus Taylor. Overseas, it's people like Boris Johnson in the UK, Donald Trump in the US. Now, this is bad enough in itself, but for the Australian government, even when they're presented with irrefutable evidence, they double down and they keep denying and whether it's economic news or whether it's about greenhouse emissions or whether Naomi Wolf lived at Oxford in 1991. In the case of Angus Taylor, he claimed that Naomi Wolf did live at Oxford University when he was there in 1991, but she actually left in 1988, three years before that. And during 1991, she was on an international travel tour promoting her book, The Beauty Myth. Seems like the government just won't concede any point at all to anyone, no matter how small or trivial or insignificant that point might be. And the problem here is that they're not winning any of these smaller points anyway, and they're losing control of the bigger picture overall. We can go back to poor media. The countries in the world which have influence by Rupert Murdoch have, let's face it, terrible parliaments. Boris Johnson hid in a refrigerator on the last day of campaigning and still won in a landslide. How is that possible? Donald Trump can't lie straight in bed. More lies. Uh, The whole Ukraine thing, he'll probably get off, I think. We have, of course, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison in Australia, none of whom have been outstanding candidates. And none of who have been rocked by outside forces. It's been their own flaws and weaknesses as people that have, have led to their own downfalls. It's true of all prime ministers ultimately, but usually it's something outside. None of them have needed outside influences to bring them down. Uh, you have the Netanyahu government in Israel, which is one of the most corrupt governments in the world, although apparently it's on its way out now. We need media reform. It is that simple. We need to cut how much any one company can own. We probably need to look at foreign ownership and how that works. I would have it that you can't own more than 10% of of the media industry in Australia. I think that's a good place to start. It's not going to happen during this government, and I doubt if the government was to change to the other side it would happen. But that's where I'd start. The biggest political news this year in Australia was the federal election in May. 
We've covered that in depth in quite a few of our previous episodes, but it is the election result that keeps reverberating for both sides of politics. It was an unexpected victory for the Liberal Party, and their performance since that time indicates how unexpected that victory was. They weren't prepared for government then, and they're not prepared for government now. But still, Labor isn't as far behind as the media keeps saying. There's only eight seats between them and forming government at the next election, and the Liberal Party is not as far ahead as the media keeps claiming either. They're only one seat away from minority government, and in the present climate, losing a seat or two is always a distinct possibility for this government. Some analysts have been pointing out that the recent British election was a replica of the Australian election. Aside from Labor losing in both elections in both countries and issues with their respective leaders, that's where the similarities end. Labor in Australia was very united. British Labor was horribly divided. Australian Labor is a clear chance to win at the next election, but British Labor is so far behind that a return to government for them is probably a 10-year project. There are many areas that we can look at for highlights throughout the political year, but there's one area that's been sadly lacking and didn't get much of a mention at all, and that's Indigenous Affairs. The Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt, He presented a proposal and a schedule for constitutional recognition, but this was knocked back by the government, again erroneously claiming, and there's no surprises there, that it was the third chamber of parliament and it wouldn't be accepted by the public. And Ken White's proposal was put into the trash can by Scott Morrison. There are many areas that have been ignored by this government throughout the year. There's Indigenous affairs, domestic violence, and as we've mentioned so many times, climate change and greenhouse emissions, but are there any other issues that are being ignored by this government or are there any other issues that they just like to push into the background? I think we'll find that economic management might be pushed into the background with the uh, downgrading of the beloved and sacred surplus. Environment, obviously. Welfare doesn't rate. We we've hear about it a lot, but they do nothing about it. A real raise in New Start real raise in old age pensions, in in disability pensions, in Ausstudy. Basically, the government is not interested in those without access to money or connections. And this is true across the right, at least in the Anglosphere uh, at the moment. We haven't had the Medicare debate that I think the NHS debate has brought up, but Yes, Medicare should be reformed, but it should be reformed to make it more inclusive. That's not the way that they will go if they get the chance. And we've seen in Britain, even though Labor ran hard on the NHS, they still lost. And I think that's the end of the NHS in Britain. economic factors, there was the mid-year economic fiscal outlook report that was released last week, that's the MyEFO, and it actually shows a worsening position for the government. The surplus has been revised down from $7 billion to $5 billion. Now, we don't think that the surplus is the be-all and end-all for government spending, 
but that's what they want to do and that's what they'll continue to persevere with. But the forecasts over the next four years have been halved from $45 billion to $23 billion and the revenue is down by $32 billion or it will be down by $32 billion. Economic factors, as you mentioned before, this will be the big factor over the next couple of years leading up to the next election. And it's probably a case where because economically where the Australian economy isn't looking so good over the next couple of years, that this is when the government will start ramping up other issues um, such as welfare, such as Medicare or reforming Medicare. There's also the, the two couple of burning issues that have been hovering in the background for some time. There's the religious discrimination bill that the government is so intent on introducing. Now, as far as I can see, religious discrimination wasn't an issue before August 2018. That's when Scott Morrison became the Prime Minister. But ever since that time, it's become a seriously big issue that the government has been preoccupied with. We also had the nuclear power report, which Angus Taylor, the politician that's made so many mistakes this year, he started off on the nuclear report six months ago. And they did promise that they'd report by the end of this year or complete the report by the end of this year. And that's what they've done. They released it last week. And the report has indicated that, yes, they should proceed with nuclear power or should investigate the options of nuclear power into the future. Now, these are two quite large issues that so many occasions in the past, nuclear power has been ruled out by so many governments over the past 50 or 60 years. Religious discrimination, it's not really an area that many people are concerned about. I can, I can sense that these are going to be the big things that the government pushes forward over the next year and a half or two years. In the background, economic issues, because they're so dire and, and looking, looking increasingly bad for this government, that they'll push that into the background. So we'll end up getting all of these cultural war issues, all of these other things that aren't really a big concern for the electorate the government will keep highlighting this over the next 18 months or two years. Yeah, the religious um, discrimination bill is the strangest and most bizarre thing. In Australia, a secular nation, uh, you're allowed to have whatever religious beliefs you like, provided they don't transgress any laws. Now, of course, as our laws are based on religious texts, particularly the Old and the New Testament, there's very little chance that, that laws will be transgressed by major religions. There are some minor religions and branches of major religions that want to break the laws. Uh, I guess most innocuously the um, Mormon Church's polygamy statute, which comes and goes. To hang your flag to that says a lot about the Prime Minister. It says a lot about the people supporting the Prime Minister I don't know what's going to happen when they get the cognitive dissonance that this needs to be applied across all religions, not just the Christian ones. And what happens if, for example, a uh, Hindu chemist refuses to sell a Christian patient some medicine because part of it has the product of cow's meat? I don't know of any medicines, but you know what I'm saying. This is the type of ridiculousness that we have to, to get to. We'll have nuclear energy in Australia. That's something that will be explored that no one really wants. And then we'll have a religious discrimination bill that no one wants either. So Australia could end up, at the end of this process, Australia could end up being a nuclear-powered theocracy to rival Iran. That would certainly make things very, very interesting on the, on the international political scene. We're almost at the end of our final episode of this year, but we can't go without telling you about our new book, it's called Divided Opinions and it's coming out in January. 
will feature the 2019 year in Australian politics, extended notes from all of our podcast episodes this year, as well as a series of featured articles we've published online. And as usual, we'll provide political perspectives that you won't find in the mainstream media. We'll come out in paperbook and ebook, and details will be available at our website, so keep a lookout for it. David, will you be picking up a copy of this book? As it happens, I only ever read stuff I wrote myself, so I'm very much looking forward to, to having a look at it. It's a shame it's January, it was going to be a Christmas stocking for all my friends and family, but oh well. No, in all seriousness, uh, the proofs I've read have been really great, I've been really excited to read them. And so I'm really looking forward to it coming out, and I hope everyone who gets a copy of it, firstly I hope everyone gets a copy of it, and I hope you all enjoy it, and we'll be talking more about it closer to the release date. So that's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone. Goodbye to our listeners and all the best for 2020. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time and have a very happy and safe holidays. Mm-hmm.